Welcome back. This is Kelly Gregg, G-R-E-G-G of kellygregg.com, and this is podcast number seven in the series on diet and health. Just to remind you, Diet and Health is the book I've written, and I'm doing these podcasts as a somewhat condensed version of the book, although my ultimate goal is to try to get you to buy the book, which you can either on Amazon or going to my website and getting a link. I've already gone over food, what it is, and what happens when you eat. And now we're going to talk about what happens when you don't eat. Western civilization now has about a 40% incidence of obesity, prediabetes, and diabetes. So I would suspect that we're not getting around to not eating very often. I'm going to compare our current diet over the last hundred years or so with the diets over the previous 5,000 years, which we did not have a 40% incidence of obesity. I am not going to solve your problems with fasting. Certainly I'll talk about fasting and I think it can be useful to us, but fasting is not going to cure type 2 diabetes and for the most part it's not going to cure obesity. It will, however, demonstrate what happens in your body when you don't eat, and this will be a key to how we can help manage type 2 diabetes, how we can get rid of obesity, and how the common maintenance diet can help you avoid getting it in the first place. I'm going to mention this several times throughout the whole podcast. I will try to get you to eat nothing for 12 hours, between the last meal of the day and the first meal of the day. I believe most everyone can do it, and most everyone has done it, and this simple act is going to be an important part of your diet. If we think back, for the last 5,000 years, this was probably extremely common. People ate at sunrise and ate at sunset, and usually did not have the ability to go to the refrigerator in the middle of the night and get something to eat. I am therefore going to use the power of advertising by repeating this recommendation until everybody decides to do it. Amazingly enough, it seems to work. By the end of the book or the end of the series of podcasts, most people will agree with me and most people will have that 12-hour fast most of the time. And by the end of the book, you'll realize the significance of having that. In any case, Most of the time, we are not eating. We need energy to live. In fact, we can say that expending energy is life. The basic purpose of your body is to get energy. Now, we only get energy through eating. Now, I know we may get a tiny bit of energy through sunlight and vitamin D production, but for the most part, we get energy through eating. Your body does a great job of converting the food we eat into energy and, in fact, saving some of that energy so we don't run out. Your brain needs energy to think, and if your brain is not thinking, then you're not gathering more energy. And, in fact, it's unlikely you will get more energy. At this point, you know what happens when you eat carbs. Primarily, the glucose level rises. The pancreas can regulate the amount of insulin such that within two or three hours, 
the glucose level returns to normal and the insulin returns to its baseline level. We commonly do a glucose tolerance test in which you eat a measured amount of glucose, usually around 75 grams, and we measure your glucose in a couple hours. Well, sometimes we measure it in between, and sometimes we actually measure the insulin level. If after two hours your blood glucose is 140 or less, then we say you have a normal glucose tolerance test. This may in fact be the first thing to be abnormal if you are developing insulin resistance. It is abnormal long before your fasting blood sugar is elevated. Anyway, if you're normal after two or three hours, your insulin drops to a low level and very little of the glucose in your blood is being converted into fat by your fat cells. Your brain is happily plugging along using glucose for energy. Since there is always a little fat in your bloodstream also, many of the other cells are using that for energy also. This is fortunate because now you remember your brain uses glucose for energy, whereas the other cells of your body have a few more options. Your body was wisely created to prioritize your brain so that when no glucose is coming in, we want to save most of it in the blood for your brain to use and let the other cells in the body use other things for energy. But no matter what, if you continue not eating, your glucose level does steadily drop. Your body is prepared for just such a circumstance. Remember I told you about the glycogen in your liver? There is about a hundred grams of glycogen there. As the glucose level begins to drop, your liver enhances the glucose level in your blood by breaking apart this glycogen into glucose molecules and secreting it into the blood. I also may have forgotten to tell you that your muscles also contain glycogen. In fact, more glycogen, around 400 grams of glycogen, are contained in your muscle. But the muscle cells cannot convert to the glycogen into glucose and secrete it into the bloodstream to support your brain. Now, it can use the glycogen to function and such preserve that glucose in the blood for your brain, but it does not raise the blood glucose in and of itself. Those 400 grams of glycogen allow you to exercise vigorously for, oh, about a day, maybe a little less. So if you stop eating and do nothing else, your bodily e easily has enough glucose stored to last at least a day. Remember, you've got lots of fat and lots of protein, but those fat cells do not convert the fat back to glucose, so it doesn't contribute all to the body's glucose level. It does secrete lots of fatty acids, but you'll also remember the brain does not use fatty acids for energy. So it seems like everybody should be passing out after a day or so without eating as the glucose will get all used up and your brain just simply does not like that. Of course, we all know that doesn't happen. When the insulin level drops and the glucagon level goes up, remember glucagon is secreted by the alpha cells in the pancreas. Don't confuse glucagon with glycogen. Glucagon is a hormone, glycogen is starch. Anyway, when the insulin goes down 
and the glucagon goes up, your liver begins manufacturing glucose out of protein. You'll see as we go along, the liver can make practically anything. The glucagon also begins stimulating your fat cells to release fatty acids. We'll talk about calories later, but for now most of you already know that fat has about twice the amount of energy as glucose. Hence, if we start releasing these fatty acids, and we've got lots of uh, triglycerides we can convert into fatty acids, our body should function almost normally. By the way, the glucagon also stimulates adrenaline or epinephrine, which also encourages the fat cells to begin releasing these fatty acids. So, even when we stop eating, we have plenty of energy. Oh, but uh, remember that darn brain you have. It still needs glucose for its energy requirements. These fatty acids may just be a little too big to pass through the blood-brain barrier, even though we may have lots. By the way, every time your fat cells metabolize a triglyceride into three fatty acids, it has a glycerol molecule left over, and your liver likes to take those and turn them into glucose also. Now, as the fatty acids begin rising in the blood, and coincidentally, the glucose begins decreasing, and your liver not only begins making glucose from protein, but also begins manufacturing what are called ketone bodies. These are derived from the fatty acids and are small water-soluble molecules. I'll talk a lot more about this on the podcast on fasting, but for right now, you need to know that when you stop eating, you get a rise in fatty acid level, you get the liver making new glucose and also the kidney, and you get the liver making ketone bodies. That is significant in that the brain can use ketone bodies for energy. So there's a race between the dropping of the glucose level and the rising of the ketone bodies to keep your brain happy. And almost all the time, the brain wins. It is a rare event that the brain will stop working because it does not have any energy. In fact, the only time this occurs is when medication has been involved, especially if insulin is involved, as in you give yourself too much insulin. There is actually some confusion as to whether the brain may prefer to use ketone bodies. In any event, as time goes on and you continue not eating, the majority of the energy from the brain is derived from ketones' bodies. Your liver is still happily making glucose, and the rest of your body is happily using fatty acids, but you don't need nearly as much glucose to th keep things going along swimmingly. There are various metabolic states in your body. So far, we've talked about eating, not eating for a little while, and not eating for longer than a little while. There are several other metabolic states, and they are continually in flux in your body. Later, I will even talk about someone who did not eat carbohydrates for a year, yet did not suffer any problems with brain function. To review, diabetes is elevated blood sugar. Now, really, it is elevated blood glucose. It is not elevated blood fructose or lactose or maltose, just glucose. Insulin is released in response to glucose, no other sugars. 
Hence, we can consider diabetes to be a disease of insulin. Either there is too little, or it is not working correctly. In fact, later you can see there may be too much. But the problem is never that there is something wrong with the insulin itself. It's the same molecule it always was. It's just being secreted inappropriately. You eat fats in the form of triglycerides, which are then converted into fatty acids, which are then absorbed into your body either through the lymphatic system, if there are larger fatty acids, or through the portal vein, if there are medium fatty acids. We eat protein, which can be very long molecules, and your digestive system converts these long proteins into smaller proteins, and eventually into amino acids, which is the primary way that this is absorbed. You have three primary monosaccharides, that being glucose, fructose, and galactose. Fruit contains fructose and also some glucose. But the main way we get glucose is through starch, which is a long chain of glucose molecules, or in table sugar, which is a combination of glucose and fructose. Remember, we also have three main disaccharides, which are two sugar molecules. You have table sugar, which I mentioned, which is fructose and glucose. You have lactose, which is glucose and galactose, mainly in dairy products, and unless you have lactose intolerance, is not a major factor. And you have maltose, which is two glucose molecules. You really don't eat any maltose. However, when you eat starch, the saliva can convert the string of glucose molecules into a maltose molecule, which is two glucose molecules. We stop eating for a little while, and your liver can break apart glycogen, which is a string of glucose molecules, into individual glucose molecules, which supports the blood sugar for a while. Don't forget you have lots of other glycogen in the muscles, which can provide energy for the muscles, but cannot be secreted into the bloodstream in the form of glucose. And we have your wonderful liver, which will start making glucose for you out of protein, although it could probably make glucose out of virtually anything, and that supports the glucose level. Your fat tissue in the meantime is starting to secrete fatty acids, which provides the energy for the body, and your liver is taking these fatty acids and creating ketone bodies, which can be used for energy by the brain and probably by the other tissues in the body but they generally prefer the fatty acids since you get so much more energy per molecule of fatty acid. Now I've given you enough lingo that we can proceed with talking about the rest of the book. I will refer back to these topics throughout and in fact add additional information for you to these topics. If you just remember any new words that you didn't know before you started, we're essentially finished with the biochemistry portion. I'm now going to review what happened, which requires a little history. And I say what happened because remember, the previous 5,000 years we didn't have 40% obesity rate, and we do over the last 100 years or so. Something happened, and it primarily has to do with food, and now we can reasonably talk about it. 
And that's what I'm going to do on the next podcast, which will be podcast number eight. Remember, I'm giving you the condensed version of the book. And if I'm following the book, I've only gone through about 15% of it. But there's a lot more stuff I've got to teach you. I'm Kelly Gregg with 3Gs.com. And you'll find me on my website or at Amazon. I would be saying I'm trying to talk you into buying my book, but I'm really not trying to talk to you into buying it. I think many of you will buy it to use as a reference, and because it's just easier to read in a written form rather than listening to it on the podcast. I am trying to help most of you, and I'm trying to get you healthier. And my ultimate goal is to get you healthier by preventing these problems. And I'm going to contend that one of the ways to prevent them is to go on the common maintenance diet, which I'm going to talk about in the last third of the book. Remember, I may not be a real doctor. And as I may have told you before, I did take a correspondence course in mycology studies and received a certificate from a Caribbean island. This enabled me to be addressed as Dictor Greg. Believe it or not, the medical board would not accept these credentials, but I still like to be addressed as Dick Greg. In fact, I've received many compliments uh, by people saying, uh, Kelly, you're such a dick. So this is Dick Greg, and the next podcast is coming up in that we're going to talk about what happened and a little dietary history.